the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following is a conversation between Helene Gale, President and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. A person's career path often starts working with a local organization, then tackling bigger issues on a national stage, and ultimately being an integral part of an international enterprise. But that isn't always the case. For instance, my next guest has had leadership roles at the Center for Disease Control, a U.S. federal agency, the Gates Foundation leading their HIV-AIDS programs, and the international human services organization, CARE. But now, she is turning her attention to helping improve the lives of people in one of America's greatest cities. She is Dr. Helene Gale, the president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust. Good evening, Dr. Gale, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, before I get into the Chicago part of your organization, let me ask you about the community trust piece, because I know there are some folks out there who are a bit unclear about, you know, what they are and where their money comes from and how they work. So fill us in. Great. Well, um, you know, the Chicago Community Trust, um, as many people think because of the name, the trust first, they are confused. Is it a bank? Um, (laughs) But when I say a community foundation, uh, it still is something that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And so a community foundation is this wonderful creation that came about um, just over 100 years ago. And and our foundation is one of the earliest ones that was an opportunity for citizens that were concerned about their communities to pool their resources in an organization that could then distribute those resources to the greatest needs within the community. So we have both an arm that is uh, that focuses on donors and mm-hmm. people who want to be generous um, to their communities, and then also an arm that focuses on where can those resources be used to create the greatest change and meet the greatest needs within a given community. So it's a wonderful opportunity for citizens to aggregate their resources, if you will, um, to make a difference in their own communities. Would it be anything analogous to the concept of a United Way where you collect money and then the people at the trust have an idea of what the needs are in the community and try to leverage that in the most intelligent way to do the most good, or would it be something different than that? It's it's very similar to the United Way. Obviously, United Way has primarily focused on uh, workplace giving. Yep. And um, within the United Way system, people generally designate for a specific organization that they want to fund to. In a community foundation, um, people can give their resources in an unrestricted way so that we put it to use, or they can, um, through donor-advised funds, actually designate where they want their resources to go. So we have a fair amount of latitude to invest in the ways that we think can make the biggest difference um, within communities, but we also um, are able to give 
uh, resources to organizations that donors designate directly. So there's a bit of the same sort of kind of direct um, designations as as uh, the United Way has, but it's all it's all the same sort of idea. How do you aggregate resources that can then go to serve the greatest needs within a community? Yeah, have impact. Exactly. How many nonprofit grants do you give out? Uh, uh, the number of grants I'd have to think about, but we give out, um, so what, we have about $3 billion under asset, mm-hmm. uh, under man, assets under management. Um, we give out uh, around $400 million every year, and we take in uh, roughly about uh, $350, 400000000 million every year. Yeah. Um, in addition to grants, do you get involved in loans or impact investing or any things along those lines? Well, we do now, and mm-hmm. we've started um, giving out loans and other ways besides just grants uh, so that people can, in fact, um, invest in building small businesses or other things that, that loan or equity could be more useful for. So we've really gotten started in this whole area of impact investing. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it gives us a broader range of ways besides just grant funding to actually have long-lasting, sustained impact um, within communities. You know, when I think of a community foundation, I sometimes think of older donors because uh, it's a bit more of a traditional vehicle. How are you doing with the millennials? Well, we're looking at that issue, and, you know, clearly the millennial donors are different. They want to be more involved. They're more uh, directly involved with where they contribute their resources um, and directly involved in the sense that they want to actually be thought partners. They don't want to just give. Hmm. They also are very interested in this area of impact investing Uh and how do you make – Loans. How do you help start businesses? How do you think about things in not the traditional nonprofit way? And so we're looking at these different kinds of approaches that will appeal to the next generation of of donors. Um, because, I, as you said, I think oftentimes we find that the more traditional donor um, is no longer the donor of tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you, if you would, um, Helene, to paint a picture of the city of Chicago, because we have a lot of listeners who aren't uh, familiar with Chicago. Uh, I think you got some sports fans who know maybe the Cubs play on the north side and the White Sox <laughs> on the south side. But Chicago is truly a uh, tale of two cities. So if you could just sort of give us a visual map of the city. Yeah, well, you know, I didn't know Chicago very well before I moved there, and it's been wonderful to discover some of the incredible contributions I'd forgotten as a, that Cracker Jacks was created were created in Chicago. I did not know um, that. <laughs> you know, uh, we all know Sears and Roebuck, um, mm-hmm. and and so many things that Chicago brought us. But I I, I think that in recent years, Chicago has been known more for things like. Um, the issue of, of violence yeah. and other things. And so I think, you know, um, there there is, as you said, a real tale of two cities. You know, on one hand, Chicago has one of the most incredibly dynamic um, downtowns ever. It's beautiful uh, with the lakefront and Millennium Park. And, you know, it has some of the um, wealthiest businesses in the world. On the other hand, you can go five, uh, six miles away from downtown and see um, very clear, undervalued, disinvested communities. And that's where a lot of the things that we hear so much about, some of the violence and other issues, um, that's where that takes hold. And, and I think more in the south part of the city? Well, it, south and west, west sides yeah. of the and, city primarily, yeah. um, where, where communities of color, black and, and Latinx mm-hmm. communities um, have 
ended up uh, based on a lot of longstanding issues uh, related to residential segregation and some of the policies, federal policy and other uh, that that uh, then um, ended up being enacted at the local level that led to this uh, extreme segregation and very persistent patterns that have really left communities out of the uh, the economic opportunity. And so it's one of the issues that we're trying to address at, at uh, the Chicago Community Trust, because until you look at um, untangling some of these issues, the issues of violence, uh, poor health, um, lack of access to educational opportunities, they won't be solved until mm-hmm. you solve these root causes of this get this widening um, wealth gap that exists in in Chicago. Yeah, and to underscore that five or ten mile trip from uh, one of the more opulent areas to one of the more low income areas in Streeterville, uh, which is one of the nicer areas, residents live up to ninety, right, higher than the than the U.S. average. Yeah, that's right. And in Englewood, which is in one of those areas that you were just speaking about, it's sixty. That right. is the largest divide in the United States now. I know that just can't be because people who are living in Englewood don't have access to health care. I'm sure it's a part of it. But speak a little bit more as to the whole breadth of issues that create that horrific disparity. Yeah, and it's 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 jaw-dropping it when is. you think about this. And, you know, having spent so much of my life working in developing countries around the world, you know, it's been um, painful and shameful for me to come back to the United States and mm-hmm. see these kinds of glaring inequities that manifest themselves in things like the health disparities. But as you mentioned, this is more than just a lack of access to to health services. And in Chicago, there's several um, institutions. Um, there's a there's one particularly on the west side uh, that Rush University Medical System has has um, spearheaded called West Side United that looks at what we call the social determinants of health. Hmm. They looked at this this glaring inequity in health and recognize that if you didn't look at issues like jobs and employment, access to safe nutrition, uh, public safety so that people were able to walk and exercise, edu- access to education, all of these root causes, if you will, that undergird these um, health disparities, improving health access alone was not going to do it. Interesting. And so more and more this issue of the what we call social determinants of health, economics, education, safety, food, etc., are the things that people are focusing on more if they want to have an impact on these health disparities. Again, the health disparity is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Um, It's more of a symptom than actually uh, a cause. Yeah, and along those same lines, disparity in income. Uh, The wealth of white families is 10 times greater than African Americans, 8 times greater than Latina X. And uh, how do you think about a problem of that dimension at the Chicago Community Trust and get your arms around it, uh, get the right mindset in terms of trying to tackle it, uh, develop a strategy to take on something that large. Yeah, well, you know, um, we've actually put as our highest organizational priority working to help close the racial wealth gap. That's great. uh, Because we do believe that unless we tackle that issue, all these other factors, um, which are symptomatic of this this, um, racial wealth gap, 
you know, are not going to be solved. So it's so core, it's so fundamental. And so we said this is going to be our highest priority. And I think, you know, there's a there's a variety of different ways in which one can approach it. But I think at the um, core to it is the fact that these things didn't happen because of individual behaviors alone. They happen because of policies that really kind of systematically rob people of the opportunity to be part of the economic engine of this of this nation. And if you look at a recent um, report came out um, that showed that through the practice of redlining and contract um, housing, uh, contract house buying, mm-hmm. um, which were all um, federally sanctioned policies, that three to four billion dollars of wealth was robbed from the black community in Chicago. And it's well documented. Mm-hmm. And so these are public policies. And so I think a big piece of it has to be looking at what are the kinds of public policies that it can actually start to um, redress some of these issues. In addition to this, you know, you look at a lot of the communities on the south and the west side in Chicago, and there has been there has been widespread disinvestment in these communities. Yep. So there has to be a plan to think about how do we start reinvesting in those communities? How do we give uh, capital access to people who have the entrepreneurial spirit and the ability to start small businesses but don't have access to capital. So we're focusing on on issues like that. We're also focusing on the issue of debt because, you know, on one hand, you can create wealth, but if it gets taken away by discriminatory practices of fines and fees and other things, uh, predatory lenders that just kind of keep people – um, in this downward spiral of debt, you're not going to be able to solve that. So we're, we're looking – That's a great point to tell you the truth. People overlook debt often when they're thinking about this, but that can just paralyze you for the rest of your life. Well, huge. And when you think about um, school debt and so many um, uh, young people from from backgrounds where they don't have the ability to access the kinds of loans or end up in schools um, where they, they get such a loan debt burden – don't ever finish because they can't they, can. they can't economically but then they carry this huge debt burden. So we're looking at all these issues around, you know, access ways in which people can accumulate ass- assets, um, whether that's through entrepreneurship, whether that's through better opportunities for job, but also looking at the debt side and overall thinking about what are both the policies as well as the programs that can make a difference. You know, a great tool in this endeavor, too, um, which, again, I don't think people fully understand, so I hate to ask you to teach us all here this evening, but I will. It's the Earned Income Tax Credit. Speak a little bit about that and how it works. Yeah, and so the uh, without getting too technical, earned, um, earned Income Tax Credit is something that we already have. It's a policy that exists that allows um, low and, and um, uh, working class families to get a tax credit, if you will, if they fall below a certain um, uh, income level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is something that could be expanded. It's a way of giving working families, and oftentimes, and I've you know, talked to many uh, people who get earned um, income tax credits, but, you know, these are people who are oftentimes, have done everything right. They're, they've gotten uh, education, they're working two and three jobs, but they still can't make ends meet. So the earned income tax credit is something that gives a little bit of relief, gives a little bit of a cushion, if you will, to people who are already struggling to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. But it's, as so many of these programs, it's cumbersome. Yes, complicated. Um, it's complicated. 
people who are eligible for it don't even know that they're eligible. <laughs> it comes as a lump sum mm. at the end of the year. How many of us um, can manage on a lump sum once a year? Give it to me if every this, two weeks, please. Right, that's the way, way we operate our lives. Exactly. If yeah. this was uh, – if the periodicity of it was um, straightened out, if there was a way of – uh, helping with the applications that are very cumbersome, if there's a way of doing outreach to people who are eligible. And also another kind of wonky piece of this is that, you know, people have to constantly be figuring out if I get this, if I take this earned income tax credit and I do make a little bit more money, do I then get kicked off of that um, just at the time where I'm starting to make a foothold? So we also have to start thinking about are we penalizing people for the very thing we want them to do, which is to get uh, more economically uh, viable, but then we pull the rug out from underneath them? So there's a lot of these things that could inc- improve the earned income tax credit um, system that could give real relief to people who are just starting to get an economic foothold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about gun violence. You brought that up a moment or two ago. and. You know, for so many of us around the country, when we think of Chicago, we think of the news reports that come to us after a long weekend on how many people were shot. It's, it's, it's just a tragic to hear all that. And, you know, the income in, inequity you talk about exists in other cities, too, um, and all these other root causes. Um, but it seems that there's just this level of violence in Chicago, which is significantly greater than, than many of the other uh, major cities around the country. Why do you think that's occurring? Yeah, well, first, um, you know, I always have to start by telling people, you know, Chicago is really overall a very safe city. Yeah. And so many friends, when uh, they ask me, you know, uh, do you feel safe to walk down the streets at night? You know, by and large, Chicago is a very safe city. And we know that violence is concentrated in certain neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make it any better um, by any means. But I think it does highlight, again, this notion of the tale of two cities. And where we see violence, we also see concentrated poverty. Um, I think it's difficult to tangle out why, you know, Chicago more than others. But I do think that, you know, when we look at some of the cities that have really um, made a difference, you know, at the end of the day, any problem can be solved if you have the right plan, political will and resources. And if you have a community that comes together and looks at the whole picture, which is partly uh, public safety. We know that um, police have a role. But are we building a police force that's working with a community Mm -hmm. or is it working against the communities? How do do communities uh, feel like they are being protected? You know, we know that in in Chicago, there's a huge um, rate of unsolved homicides. You know, if people are... are able to feel like they ha- there is no um, recourse for communities where they recognize that the violence is a huge problem. They want those homicides solved. Yeah. Somebody wants to know who killed their son or mm-hmm. daughter. So there's there's clearly a policing part of it, but there's a huge part that has to do with how are you putting together a more comprehensive plan that looks at policing but also looks at economic development also looks at education. Um, this is not a short-term fix. And without a long-term plan that looks at how do you interrupt violence in immediate sense, 
but also how are you fixing the sustained problems that led to this? We're not going to be able to get get anywhere. But we know that there are cities that have made a dent. So, it, again, it's back to political will, resources, and a plan. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, at the heart, Chicago has all those things. They really do. It's an incredible city. And I know they did not have an Office of Violent Prevention the way we did in New York and the way L.A. did. So there's some things I think they're going to be able to pick up and try to address. And I know you're part of this Chicago Fund for Safe and Peaceful Communities. Exactly. Which is a pilot a few years ago. And it's going to be going again this summer, right? Right, right. And so we have put out resources through the Summer Fund that um, allows communities to come up with their own solutions for the summer around how they can deal with what we all know is a, a... uh, resurgence of violence during the summer months when um, young people are out in the streets and it's warm and 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 so you know we know that the summer months there's always an uptick in violence and so these resources give communities the ability to come up with some of the own their own solutions that they think will make a difference but you know again I I think as you point out there are things that Chicago could could learn from some of the cities like New York and L A and others um, where they have had a sustained um, focus on this that could make a big difference. And, you know, I know you have one of one of your other guests who will be speaking, Arnie Duncan, has uh, really done so much in this arena and really starting to pilot how, you know, working with populations mm-hmm. who are at high risk for violence, what are some of the ways you can make a difference? Yeah, yeah. When we think of the Chicago Community Trust, we think of people giving money and we think of grants going out. But I know you look at that organization as being so much more of what you can mean to the community and how you can impact it beyond the money part about talk uh, the money piece of it. Talk a little bit about some of the things you're thinking of doing to make an impact in Chicago. Well, I think, you know, when I look at an institution, it is both the things that it does in a tangible way. As you said, we we um, receive donations and we also make grants to communities. But we're also an institution that is respected. We've been around for hundred, almost 105 years now. Um, it's seen as an organization that has always been um, a fair and honest broker for the community. So I think, you know, in some ways we have the ability to influence um, beyond just our dollars. Mm-hmm. And we're really thinking about how do we use our voice as an institution? How do we help to convene others who are thinking about the same issues that we can? Because I think it's by really developing those kinds of partnerships that we can have the biggest impact. So, we, you know, we see our ability to be an influencer, to be a convener, um, to be a thought partner on some of these important issues for the community. And I think, you know, we hope to build some of those aspects even more than we have in the past. That's great. You also look to engage the voices of the community, and often voices don't get, that don't get heard uh, quite often. And one of your tools for doing that is something called On the Table. Tell us about it. Yeah, right. Um, it, it's I think it's a, a great program, and I can say that because it started before I got there. <laughs> um, but it's a chance, you know, the, taking this concept that sometimes breaking bread together and having difficult conversations is the way that you can bring people together around issues. And so we started about five years ago, six years ago mm-hmm. now, um, this On the Table Conversations. And every year in May, um, there, throughout Chicago, there are thousands of table conversations, mm-hmm. dinner conversations going on where somebody uh, voluntarily is a host, invites people around the table to talk about the issues that matter the most 
to them um, as citizens of Chicago. And it's a great chance for people to have a conversation and to um, share with people who they may not have talked about, talked to um, as much in the past. But this year we did something a little bit different because in the past it's kind of been have a conversation about whatever you want to talk about. Um, and this year we said because we have this opportunity of a new mayor um, and kind of a historic mayor in many ways, one who is very focused on the issues of equity throughout the, the uh, throughout the community, let's have these conversations as a memo to the mayor. And so people throughout the city use that as an opportunity to share with our new mayor what were the things that were top of mind and what did what did they want to see from her in her leadership? And so it was a really galvanizing experience for the whole community to come out and share in this day of talking about lifting their voices to actually say what they want to see out of our mayor for the next few years. Well, let's talk a little bit about <clears> – <throat> I'll say that again uh, because I got a frog. Um, yeah, let's talk about your your new mayor, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Um It is an exciting time in Chicago. Tell us a little bit about her and what you're hoping to see from her administration. Well, you know, um, Lori Lightfoot is um, somebody who came with um, incredible credentials, having been a lawyer um, for decades, Mm -hmm. um, uh, an African-American gay woman um, who had never served in elected office before, although she had had worked very closely in in several different government um, posts. Um, So she came as kind of a fresh voice in a way, and I think um, really came in with a real commitment to these issues of, of equity and really wanting to focus on some of the things she had been very involved in police reform. And so these issues are very close to, you know, her and her administration, and she's prioritized. Um, she's developed, as an example, um, the first ever office of equity mm-hmm. within within her administration. So I know she's going to focus a lot on these issues. She's put a big focus on economic development in the in communities in the South and the West Side, and particularly the West Side, which has been particularly forgotten in a lot of these discussions. So, um, you know, I have high hopes for um, what she can do um, or what she she hopes to do. I think if you don't have the vision, you're not going to get there. She comes in with, I think, a very exciting vision. On the other hand, we all know Chicago politics are tough, (laughs) (laughs) you know, uh, blood sports. So, Uh, but she's she's come in, and I think in a way that um, has been courageous. She shows that she's willing to take on tough battles, and so I'm incredibly energized, and I think a lot of people are incredibly energized by uh, her vision, by her energy, by her c- courage, by her boldness. So um, she's known to be sharp. She's known to be tough. Yeah. And that's what I think it's going to take. Well, interesting times. And, you know, you throw on top of that, you have a new governor out there as well, correct? We do. We have a new governor um, who has also come, has started uh, out swinging. He's accomplished a lot more in his uh, short time in office than the previous governor did in his his time. I mean, you know, one of the biggest things is passing a budget. We the, the state of Illinois went for years that again preceded me, but went for years without passing a state budget. You know, so I think he's really thought about um, 
what he wants to do, the fact that he's looking and and has really pushing for a progressive income tax, mm-hmm. um, which could have a huge impact on these issues of equity. Um, it has to be done right. It has to be done in a way that makes sure that it balances um, the needs of the whole population. But I think the fact that he's come in with a point of view that he also is very focused on the issues of justice and equity, yeah. um, I think, um, you know, means that we've got a lot of reason for optimism for those of us who really care about these issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helene, Chicago has a reputation of being one of the most collaborative philanthropic communities in the country. Have you found that to be the case? And what's been your just general impression of the city and how it operates after a couple years? Yeah, you know, um, it's one of the things that ha- struck me the most coming in of all the cities I've ever lived in, and I've lived in a few. Um, you know, it is the most um, civically minded city. Um, it has a real spirit of collaboration, and people really love their city. Yeah, I have do. I have never uh, been in a city with this much civic pride. Uh, people bleed Chicago, if you will. And so, you know, that is incredibly optimistic. But I still, you know, worry about how divided the city is mm-hmm. and how little different parts of the city know about each other. And again, I think it's a role that we can play as the Chicago Community Trust. How do we bring people together? How do you develop that kind of sense of proximity so that people actually develop empathy and develop an understanding of what will change to make this a city that works for all. And I think that's what we all want is a city that works for all, not a city that works really well for some. But how do we make it a city that works well for all? And I think that's what every Chicagoan actually wants. It's just not always clear what it takes to get there. You know, as I mentioned a little bit in the opening, you were trained as a pediatrician, then you got into public health. And uh, as you look at your career trajectory, I don't think anybody could have planned it how one thing led to another. Walk us through it a little bit as to how you got uh, to where you're at right now. Yeah, well, um, you are right. Had had I uh, thought uh, 30-some years ago um, when I was finishing my training as a pediatrician that I would end up running a community <laughs> foundation yeah. and in between running a global nonprofit and doing global philanthropy and working journey. for the government for 20 years, you know, who would have known? Mm-hmm. But I guess, you know, for me, I think I always had a central core. I went into and, and kind of um, overarching values that led me um, along the way. You know, I went into medicine because I wanted to have a tangible way which I could make a difference. You know, I, I grew up at a time in our nation where we were going through incredible uh, social change, whether it was civil rights movement, women's movement, anti-apartheid, all of these, you know, kind of big sweeping social changes that really had a real impact on me as I was growing up. And I, you know, grew up with a sense of wanting to make a contribution, give back, and, you know, hopefully have an impact at, at a large scale. So when I went into medicine, I realized that, you know, as a individual, as a as a clinician, you can really make an impact on individuals' lives. But if you focus on something like public health, you can actually have an impact at a population level. So I went from thinking about individual impact in health to um, more of a population level. But I, you know, the longer I was in public health, both the, at a national and then global level, you know, 
started realizing that at the end of the day, as we talked about earlier, a lot of the disparities in health are really more about the underlying social causes mm-hmm. and economic inequality, um, other uh, systemic ways that marginalize and hold people back. And if you don't focus on some of those root causes, you're not going to be able to impact health either, either. And so that kind of led me to my work at CARE, where we focused on global poverty and all of those root causes of economic education, uh, uh, social stigma, gender inequality, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, I think that how do you keep looking at digging beyond the surface to getting at the root causes has always been at the core of of my career and my trajectory. And I think, you know, in in a lot of ways for me, just like so many people, 2016 election was a real wake-up call. And not to make this partisan, but I think that what this election, what that election showed is that we had become more and more divided as a country. And I started realizing that you know, if I looked at my career on the global stage, the United States has always been a beacon for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. We can't we can no longer be a beacon for the rest of the world if we're coming apart at the seams. And so it made me feel like I needed to commit myself to making a difference here in the United States and looking and addressing some of the very issues that kind of got me on this path to begin with, uh, issues of inequity, social um, justice, race, and the role that race plays in America. So, I, you know, I guess in some ways it's full circle, but it's always been about, you know, how do we create a more just, um, equitable world? How do we allow all people to participate in it and be able to realize their full potential? And how do we link the global to the domestic in ways that um, can really make us all a better world? Yeah, and in many ways, it's uh, one of the first opportunities you've had to make a real impact on the community in which you live. And that's exactly. going to be pretty cool. It is. <laughs> it, you know, it's, I get up every morning and, you know, I'm excited because I walk out of my door and feel like, you know, the people I see in the streets, maybe somehow I can have an impact. And in such a city that is such an incredible city that has brought so much to the nation and to the world, I want to be a part of um, making sure that Chicago can achieve its full um, potential. But I also think that it's a city that people look to for leadership. And so I think that if we can get some of these issues right in Chicago, it can have an impact. It can be an example for the rest of the nation and maybe even the rest of the world on what does it take to allow people to all uh, participate equally. And, um, you know, I think it's a task uh, worth uh, focusing on. Well, we're glad you're the one focusing on it, I'll tell you that. Dr. Helene Gale, the Chief Executive Officer and President of the Chicago Community Trust, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For people listening who would like to learn a little bit more about the trust and the work you're engaged in, tell us about your website and some of the things they'll find on it. So if you go to our website, which is um, cct.org, I think you'll find a lot about the programs, uh, the history of, of the Chicago Community Trust, and a lot of the ways in which we're really trying to bring voice to the communities that we serve. So you'll see a lot about our work within the communities, but we also have a lot of information that is important for donors. So it gives information on how people can contribute to the Chicago Community Trust and its mission. So we want to serve both our donors as well as our community and hopefully be a, a source of information about what's going right in Chicago and how we can all 
um, join together to make Chicago the city that uh, we believe it can be. Well, thanks, Elaine. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Great to be with you again. I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this. The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.